0: Uh, We're going to start by looking back just a very little bit because uh, Jude began denouncing the false teachers in verse 5. So just after his opening of the letter, he begins denouncing the false teachers. He begins with um, three Old Testament examples of sin, and, and then he goes on to compare the false teachers to those examples. The first example was that of the disobedient Israelites Wandering in the desert after God had delivered them from Egypt. The second example is, is of angels who weren't content with their position and sinned. And there is some sort of disagreement on what that would uh, be, which would that be the fall of the angels from heaven, or would that be uh, what we find in Genesis 6? I don't think that matters. I think the point being made is uh, the comparison to the the false teachers. And then the third example is that those who sinned sexually in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verses 8 to 10 he applies these things to the false teachers. He says, Yet in a manner like these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blasphemed all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So he compares them to compares the false teachers to these sin, uh, these uh, different sinners in the Old Testament, because like the Israelites and the angels, they rejected God's authority over their lives. And, and they rejected their, their leaders' authority as well, because when the Israelites grumbled against Moses, they were grumbling against God, against both of them. Um, and like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, The false teachers um, uh, have sinned sexually. We find that when it talks about them following their desires. But Jude, at this point, is not done with the false teachers. In fact, he's going to have two more sections, and he's going to have more and more harsh words of condemnation for them. Beginning at verse 11. Uh, and we're just going to read 11 to begin with. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Bala- Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he's going to give us these three examples again. Again, we see three, and we see three examples. But he begins with this, woe pronouncement, or this woe oracle, as it's called. And you see these all over the Old Testament. And when you see a, a woe pronouncement in the Old Testament, it serves to announce the pain and distress that people will experience because of their sin against, and their rebellion against God. It is judgment for their sin and rebellion. So, woe to them. And, and Jesus actually used these words too. And verse 11 is a verse that backs up that woe pronouncement. Woe to them because they have done these things. It's explaining why these teachers deserve judgment. Beginning with the example of Cain. Very well-known example. Uh, And uh, Cain murdered his brother Abel out of envy. But in what sense do these false teachers go in the way or walk in the way of Cain? There are some um, theologians who say that just as Cain murdered his brother, these these false teachers murder men's souls. But I I think that's a stretch. I think if that's what Jude meant, he would have said that. Uh, He wouldn't have just said they go the way of Cain. Uh, I think a better, especially because this is Jude and Jude Uh, builds off of of teaching about the Old Testament. And uh, I think what's better is to look at what was taught about Cain by ancient rabbis. And what was said about Cain was that he was sort of the uh, poster child uh, for uh, rebellion against God. Um, He he, uh, was a godless man. He was seen to be a godless man, one who rejected the authority of God. In fact, God even warned Cain when Cain was upset at his brother. God came to him and said, why are you so downcast? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But if you do not, sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to be your master, master but you must master it. Well, Cain didn't listen to God. He rejected God. He rejected God's way, God, God's will for his life, and murdered his brother. Like Cain... These men are rejecting God's authority. They are rejecting God's um, uh, power or his right to rule over their lives uh, and leading people into sin. Balaam is the second uh, example, and and Balaam is known for his greed and for waffling on doing the right thing because money talks. So do donkeys, by the way, sometimes. But... um, (laughs) And uh, and money talks, and he was like, "Wow, dude, this would be a lot of money." And he, he waffled. He's also known um, for leading the Israelites into sin. So, like, and 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 in this verse, it says that they uh, they abandon themselves for the sake of Balaam's error. Uh, that it says in some verses for profit. That that they do that for profit, and. Uh, So they might have been greedy, like Balaam. They might have, uh, like many teachers did in the ancient world, they might have been bilking people for money in return for their teaching. And um, that was uh, pretty common in the ancient world. But definitely, they are leading unsuspecting people into sin, just as Balaam did. Uh, And then Korah's rebellion was a rebellion that Korah led against Moses. And because it was a rebellion against Moses, God's appointed leader, ultimately it was a rebellion against God. And he was destroyed. He and all who rebelled with him and all their families were destroyed in a most spectacular way. The false teachers are rebelling against God and against God's appointed leaders of the church. And uh, so... Jude is probably put this one last, even though it's not last chronologically, which would be the more uh, traditional way of doing it, because he wants to make, leave no doubt that these men will be judged for what they are doing. They will be judged for their rebellion against God. Um, And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives these these six negative examples, again a multiple of three, six negative examples about them, these are these these are, meaning these men are hidden reefs at your love's feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam, uh, the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He's getting stronger, isn't he, in his words here. It begins, and, and if you have the old NIV He begins by calling these men blemishes at your love feasts. A better translation for that is sunken or hidden reefs. How did it become blemishes? The word used here originally at the time of this writing meant hidden reefs or sunken reefs, uh, something under the water that is a danger that we don't know about. Uh, As time went on, it came to mean, as we know, language changes, uh, it came to mean blemishes. And so at the time that this was being translated into English, that was kind of the earliest known meaning for the word. Since that time, scholars have learned that actually there was an earlier meaning, a, a better meaning that fits the context better as well. So it's hidden reefs. And, and these men are uh, like, a, like a danger underneath the surface. We have a very important rule at our lake cabin, which is never, ever, ever, ever dive off the dock. That has always been the rule because it's murky and you can't see what's underneath it. Of course, my son, I won't say which one, but those of you that know him uh, would know which one I'm talking about, likes to test the limits. And so he did dive off the dock. Fortunately, he admitted to me what he had done because when he dove, uh, his shoulder, so right next to his head, hit a sunken basketball hoop, that he did not know was there. And, of course, I said, what if that would have been your head? So never, ever, ever dive That's what these guys are. They're under the water. They can't be seen, and they are a danger to the community. Um, The second thing he says, uh, or he talks about, they they are like sunken reefs uh, at your love feasts, love feasts were community gatherings, community meals within the church that included as part of the meal the celebration of the lord 's supper and this is a, this is very attested very early in tradition. The thing is that we know from biblical history that they degenerated quickly they degenerated into sort of sinful. Uh, meals In 1 Corinthians, this is something that Paul denounces the Corinthian church for, that the wealthy were getting there early because they didn't have to work as long in hours. They were eating all the good food. They were leaving nothing for the poor, and they were leaving the poor out of it. There was also sexual stuff going on at these love feasts, which is why I just don't really like calling them love feasts, but that's what they called them. And uh, so uh, there was really wicked stuff going on at these love feasts, and it was happening in this community as well. And the leaders of that were the false teachers. So they, they, are, they are hidden reefs. They are a danger at your love feasts. Um, the false teachers are like a hidden reef. They were a danger, and the people didn't even know it. Know it. And if left undetected, it will cause the church to sink. Secondly, they are shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherds are supposed to be among the most selfless people on the planet. They care only for the sheep at great cost to themselves. They will care for the sheep. These are leaders, these are shepherds who are selfish and care only for themselves, not for the sheep. Thirdly, they are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Now, this idea of clouds without rain is a biblical metaphor. It's used elsewhere in the Bible. And it's a metaphor for something or someone that does not deliver on a promise. And, of course, the way my twisted mind works, the first thing I thought of was, as I'm sure you all did, Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) Maybe not. He is one of my real true heroes in life. And I'm thinking of Winnie the Pooh rolling around in the mud and going up in the air and asking Christopher Robin, would you please walk around saying, tut, tut, it looks like rain, and there's obviously not going to be any rain because it's Winnie the Pooh rolling in mud instead of a cloud. That's the, the, he can't deliver on what he's saying, and neither can these teachers deliver on their promises. They were promising a new and better revelation from God, but it is false. And further, they and their teaching are unstable. That's the, the word picture of a cloud being blown along by the wind. Fourthly, they are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. Um, th- this is a similar idea to the clouds that, that don't deliver on what they say. They are without fruit. They are not doing what they are supposed to do, which is produce fruit, but it also says they are twice dead and uprooted. Now, I'm going to look at this. Yeah, and it's in that same order in the new NIV. In the Greek, it's actually uprooted and twice dead, Um, and that's a little more difficult to figure out what he means by uh, uprooted and twice dead, uh, or twice dead and uprooted, but um, I think what he's getting at here is that because of their apostasy, because of their heresy, And assuming they continue in it, they will be uprooted. They will be judged. They will not be among those who are part of the children of God. And they will die twice. As we all will, they will die physically. But they will also die spiritually, eternally. uh, So twice dead. And then I think this next one is my favorite word picture. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Shame there is referring to their sinful, shameful actions. But the picture here is of high tide with these huge breakers falling in onto the land and all the foam and and these wild waves, maybe a stormy high tide. But what happens, what is left... When the tide recedes, all this scum and yuck and dead stuff that the tide washed up now is left there. And so the picture here is of this this scummy stuff left behind on the shore after the tide. And it's referring to, to the filth and the litter that is left in the wake of this heresy of these men and their teaching. And finally, he calls them wandering stars for whom the darkest, blackest judgment is uh, reserved. That word stars is planeo, which is where we get our word planets. And it's a little hard to know what he's talking about, but likely he's referring to the ancient thought that the planets represented uh, evil spirits because the planets, unlike the stars, because they weren't stars, but they look like stars. Do you know how you can tell the difference between a planet and a star? It doesn't twinkle. Yep, it doesn't twinkle, it doesn't blink. So anyway, but they move differently. They move in a designed pattern, right? But to the ancients, it looked like they were random. It's like they're not like the other things, and they must be evil then because they're different. And so this description stresses not just the instability of these people that, that uh, like the planets moved randomly, but also the fact that they're evil and they will be judged. But he's going to go on and continue this denouncement, saying it was, also, it was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Wow! Um, do you think he got his point? How many times could a guy say ungodly in one uh, in one paragraph? Now, this is from the book of First Enoch. Again, an apocryphal book, not part of the Old Testament. It was an intertestamental book, so it was written after the end of the Old Testament times and before the beginning of New Testament times. And it was a popular and well-respected writing of its day. However, Jude nor any other early church leader would have thought that this was scripture, and here's why. Because obviously it it was written before the New Testament, so if it were scripture, it would be part of the Old Testament. And we have mounds of evidence that the writers of the New Testament were working with an already closed canon. They already knew what was scripture and what wasn't. And there was a reason it wasn't scripture. And so they, they, even if they liked it, he wasn't saying this book has authority like Exodus does. Uh, because they already had a closed canon at this point. So then, why would he have used it? Well, one reason might be that even if the, the book was not scriptural, he might have thought this one part was true. Uh, But more likely, I think, that he used it to make a point about the false teachers. It really doesn't matter if Enoch actually said this. What matters is that what is said in 1 Enoch is true of these teachers. And that's what he wants them to know. That they fit this description that is in the prophecy and they will be judged. More important than why did he use 1 Enoch? And 1 Enoch, did he think it was uh, scriptural. More important than that is Jude's point, and that is that the false teachers are ungodly, uh, and they are grumblers, and they are fault finders who foment dissension, and they are ruled by their passions, by their desires, and they are arrogant, and they flatter order others in order to win favor, and get rich make money in their greed. So this is a very harsh picture that Jude is painting of these men, but it's intended to be a warning to and a motivation for his readers. And the reason he he puts it right here is because he's going to turn a corner and he's now going to tell them, now here's what you do about it. Here's instruction for how you respond to these false teachers. And this is where the rubber meets the road, beginning, uh, well, in verses 17 through 23, which, by the way, Doug Moo calls the most important verses in this letter. Uh, And it is here that we learn what it means to contend for the faith. Jude asked them at the beginning of the letter to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, and this is what he meant by that. And it is relevant stuff. Because contending for the faith, ladies, isn't just about combating heresy. It's about combating the sin and the temptation and and the weaknesses in our own lives as well. And Jude's going to address that. So that he's going to begin by telling them to remember what they've been told in verses 17 through 19. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So he's telling them, the first command he gives them here is, remember, remember what you've already been told. Remembering is a frequent command in Scripture. We saw it in in James. We saw it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We see it all over Scripture that we are to remember. But remembering involves more than just the mind. Scriptural remembering involves more than just uh, to, to remember the mind. It is a recalling, in this case, what has been taught about these false teachers. But it is a recalling that affects our thinking and our behavior. It's not just, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's an active remembering. Remembering is active. It responds to what is remembered. So they are to remember that they've been told that this would happen. Jesus told us this. Paul told us this. Peter told us this. This isn't a surprise. It's certainly no surprise to God. God is not up in heaven going, what do you mean they're teaching false teaching? I didn't know. Wait, what happened here? God is still in control, and that's part of what Jude wants to tell them. This is all, uh, was all known by God and should have been known by you. You should not be surprised by this. God is in control. Don't let them divide you. Hold tightly to the truth and to each other. Don't let them suck you in. And then he's going to tell them to stand fast. And he's going to say, "Um, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in verses 20 and 21, he tells them to stand fast with four commands. The first one is build yourselves up in the faith. The second one is pray in the Holy Spirit. The third one is keep yourselves in God's love. And the last one is wait for the mercy of Jesus to bring you to eternal life. Now, this concept of building yourselves up in the faith, over and over in Scripture where it talks about building, it's t- this is temple in- imagery. It's talking about the building of the temple and, and not only the building of a physical temple, but in the New Testament, the temple becomes us as a body of believers. Because in the Old Testament and, and in Jesus' time, the temple, the tabernacle before it in the temple, was the place where God's presence dwelt. The temple is gone. It's been gone since AD 70. Uh, And the temple now, the place where God's uh, spirit resides, is in us. We are the temple of God. We are the place where God resides. resides. And so he's saying, build yourselves up. But notice that that's plural. And he isn't saying, you build yourself up and you build yourself up and you build yourself up. He's saying, Let's build each other up in the faith. It is plural because we are to be building one another up in the faith. And when a church is going through tough times, that unity, that caring for one another, that uh, holding one another accountable becomes incredibly important. So unlike the false teachers who were causing dissension, we are to encourage one another in our faith. And we need people to encourage us, and to hold us accountable, and to care for us. But we especially need that in difficult times. He also tells them to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, praying in the Holy Spirit isn't like some tongue or something like that. It's praying in tongues, although some people interpret it that way. It just means, to, it just means prayer that is guided by the Holy Spirit, It is prayer that is in unison with God's character and will, the kind of prayer about which both John and Jude have said that you will receive what you ask when you pray that kind of prayer. But the main point here isn't what does it mean to pray in the Spirit. The main point here is to pray. We need to be in prayer. When we are experiencing difficult times, when we are experiencing doubt and confusion or whatever, we need prayer. We need prayer for ourselves and our own prayer, but we need others to be praying for us. Shortly after C.S. Lewis's wife died, uh, her name was Joy. There's a long story. If, uh, if you read about it, it's, it's a beautiful story. But a friend of his who was an atheist came up to him and derided him because he'd been praying for Joy and Joy died anyway. And, and the friend said, What of your prayers now? What of your prayers now? She still died. And C.S. Lewis is reported to have said, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. And we need to be people who pray for one another. The next thing he says is to keep yourselves in God's love. This is beautiful. Because remember at the very beginning, Jude told us that we are kept by and for Jesus. Now he tells us that we are to keep ourselves in Jesus. Interesting. God has done everything that we need to be saved. He has done everything for our salvation. But it demands a response. Uh, And and we, we must respond to that. We are not robots. We are not automatons. We are kept by God, but we are to keep ourselves by pursuing holiness, by following after God, by living a life consistent with the character of God which we can only do by his grace. Then he says, wait for the mercy of Jesus. This is looking toward the future. This is is saying, wait for the end. Wait patiently. This this word uh, connotes patient expectation. We know how the story ends. And by the way, it's a good ending. And, And so we can be patient in waiting for that. And we can wait with hope. We wait patiently by being obedient, not by becoming grumbly or losing hope. Uh, I love what Doug Moose says about this. He says, Jude is urging his readers to look beyond the disruptions created by the false teachers to that ultimate expression of Christ's mercy on the day he comes back in glory to bring his people to their eternal, eternal enjoyment of the life he provides. And what a day that will be. Jude says, wait patiently, it's coming, trust me. And then he says in verses 22 and 23 that the the last thing they're supposed to do is to reach out, is to minister to three different types of people. The the, the first group is those who are doubting, those who are weighing truth with the teaching of the heresy, uh, the heresy of the false teachers and not knowing what to do. The second is those who have begun to follow a wrong path with the false teachers. And the third is those who are apostate, who have fallen away from the faith, likely the false teachers themselves. We are to, in some sense, reach out and minister to each of these groups of people, but not in the same way. To the doubting, he says, be merciful. Speak the truth in love. Michael Green, who is British, I wish I could do this in a British accent, says, have, I don't know why he doesn't say tea, but have them over to coffee and chat it over with him in love. I love that word, chat. Chat it over with him in love. That's what we are to do. To those who are beginning to follow the wrong path, we need to understand that they are in real danger. And that word snatch away I mean, that's, a, that's the kind of thing, like, if you're at the side of the road and your kid starts to run out into the street, do you, is that the point where you chat with them about it? That is not the point when you chat with them about it. Whoa! You snatch them away. It's the most merciful thing you can do. Now, you do it in love. Um, you don't do it with a pointing finger. But it is the most merciful thing we can do. Because to allow someone to continue down a road to destruction, particularly eternal destruction, is is, without attempting to intervene in some way, is unconscionable. Um, It is not loving. And then finally, how are they to respond to the false teachers? Again, he says, show mercy. It's a little surprising after his harsh harsh denouncement, isn't it? That word mercy there probably means more pity and sorrow uh, for them. But he also says that it's to be mixed with fear. Why mixed with fear? Because he's saying be careful not to be influenced by them. Have mercy on them, but don't allow them to influence you. Um, the word the term I think of, okay, I've got this thing floating around here that's like a fuzzy. Or maybe my eyes are just going bad, but it's bothering me. Um, the term I thought of was do not be unequally yoked. See, there's a difference between having friends who are unbelievers because we want to influence them, and having a, a person who's like a, a It's an overused word, but a soulmate, a person on whom you lean as well as they lean on you kind of relationship, where you are yoked together, you are tied together. There are not many people in our lives that that is true of. And I, I think what Jude would tell us is that's not the kind of relationship you're supposed to have with these people, because guess what? Wherever they go, you'll go. Yeah, it's like Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Don't be their companion. Don't uh, become so close that you end up going where they are instead of the other way around. Uh, It's good to be a godly influence, but we must always be on our guard to not be influenced by them. And we should never assume, never assume that we cannot be misled ourselves, that we are above being misled. Now, this is probably the most colorful, and I wrote about this, but the most colorful part of possibly the entire New Testament, that they are clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That word clothing is the word chiton, and it means undergarment. It means underwear. It was the garment that was worn closest to the body. And stained literally means filthy, but it was a word that was used for human excrement. What my, that's what the theologians say. My kids would say poop. It's a word that's used for poop. This is a stunningly strong visual. The false teaching of these men is being pictured, and they are themselves, as being soiled underwear. Poopy diapers, if you will, which will make more sense to some of you. And it has been made so by their corrupted flesh, by their sinful behavior, and not only by their behavior, but their desire to draw others into that same behavior. This may be an offensive picture, but I think Jude intended it to be so. Uh, Doug Moose says, the false teachers and their disciples are following their own natural instincts and paying no attention to the spirit. They are producing teaching and behavior that is offensive to God, And Jude is saying here, it should be equally offensive to believers. They should naturally hate such conduct. Even then, as they act in mercy toward those who have fallen, praying that the Lord may bring them back, they must not overlook in any way the terrible and destructive behavior these people are engaged in, which reminds me of Jeff's sermon several weeks ago, hate well, hate the right things in the right way. Finally, Jude writes this beautiful doxology where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To him who is able, to God, to him who is able to keep you, to guard you, is maybe a better word, from falling. Ladies, this is more than God's ability to guard us, to keep us from stumbling into sin, although he can do that. And it is is more than just uh, God's ability to, to guard us, to keep us from succumbing to false teaching, although he can do that as well. If you look at the context, the very next thing he says is, and to present you before his glorious presence. What Jude is telling us is that God is able to keep us spiritually safe, to hold us firm in the faith until we stand before him in heaven. This is intended to give his readers great confidence in our great God. The picture that is being painted here is is of a person being guarded or protected by someone. Think of a secret service agent that is never far away. Or, Or think of a of a mom who is hovering over her child. This is the God of the universe who has absolute power to protect us. God is able to make us stand and he will bring us home. How beautiful is that? But not just to present us before his glorious presence, as if that's not enough. He's able to present us without blemish. I am not without blemish, and none are you without blemish. That means he is able to present us as blameless, without fault, without blame. That is not something we can do in our own power. It is only possible because of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf, that we have been given his righteousness. We who are unrighteous have been given his righteousness as our own, and that makes us blameless. But it isn't just that he is able to bring us before him in his glorious presence without blame. It's also with great joy. The picture here is, I love this picture, it's of this exaltation that will happen. If you think bo- heaven is boring, you're going to find out you're wrong. This great joy, I just can see God smiling, you know, that's one of mine. That's what, <laughs> I'm going to do this, by the way, his senior year, his last race. He has begged me not in the middle of a race as some mothers do as he's finishing up, or, or as he's doing well, to stand up and yell, that's my baby! And I am, his senior year, I'm going to stand up and do it to him, but not until then. <laughs> and, and that's what I, that, that exultation, that joy, you just experience the first birth of your, or the birth, birth of your children, and then amp it up a thousand times. With great joy, he is able to do that. And then Jude tells us, to God and to God alone belongs the glory. Ladies, this is not a prayer. This is not saying may God have or be given glory. This is a statement about who God is. The ascription of glory, majesty, power, and authority belongs to God and God alone, no one else. He is glorious. He is clothed in radiance and light. His, pres- his presence is majestic and glorious majesty he is the king of the universe power his is referring to his omnipotence over the world authority is is that he is not only the ruler over the world but he has the right to be the ruler over the world god is sovereign Uh, again michael green and again i wish i could do a british accent such is our god Such are his eternal qualities unveiled in Christ. To him we must come one day and must render an account. He himself will bring us thither. Uh, Why don't we use that word anymore? He himself will bring us thither if we let him and will present us faultless before his presence. To him belongs the glory and the majesty and the power and the authority forever. Amen. Jude ends his letter with a call to action. He has marching orders for us, not just his original readers, but us as well. He says, build one another up in the faith. Hold tightly to the truth and to each other. He says, pray. Pray for each other. Pray yourself. He says, keep yourselves in God's love, living in obedience to him, He says, wait patiently for that day. It is coming, and it will be a glorious day. Wait patiently for it. Reach out to those in spiritual need. And God alone deserves the glory. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, to you alone be the glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies, thank you so much for walking through these books with me. I appreciate it.